Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Social activist, teacher and politician Elsie Tu died this week, aged 102. Born as Elsie Hume in Newcastle in northern England to a working-class family, it was missionary work that first brought her to mainland China with her Plymouth brethren husband, William Elliot. In 1951, she moved south to Hong Kong, divorced and set up a school for squatter children with fellow teacher and later husband, Andrew Tu. This led to the Mu Kuang English School in 1954. Elsie Tu fought for the worker on the street and campaigned against ticket fare rises that resulted in the Star Ferry riots. She campaigned against the corruption she saw on the streets and in the police force, and her work led to the creation of the Independent Commission Against Corruption. She was an ardent anti-colonialist and later was criticised for her pro-Beijing stance. In this week's programme... I talked to Elsie too in what were two interviews, one when she was about to celebrate her 100th birthday in June 2013, the other 11 years earlier. I met her at the Mu Kuang English School in Kuantong. Well, this is what we call our, our new building. It has two parts. This part, where you came up, is the original building, which was built in 1972. And on the other side, where you came across a little bridge there from the from the lift, is what we call the extension. Now that was built in 1978. But before that, we had a tent in Wong Dai Xin. Yes, you and your Chinese husband Andrew too. You both set up. Uh, you just started a school, didn't you? When we started the school, as a tent in 1954. And after 1954. We had to move the tent. We built a small stone building and then we put a second story on and then the government said they were taking the land back. Now with the education, this this idea of yours to set up a tent in the first place, so the tent was here in Kuantong? Wong Dai Xin area. Actually called it Kaitak New Village. And opposite the airport. Who were your early students? Who were our students? Well, <laughs> that's a funny thing. We had to go around looking for students. There were a lot of squatters in the area who had no school to go to. So Mr. Du and I, who came from the same church, went around with handwritten notices asking children to come to our school. But we had no building. Anyhow, they came, and we got 50, 30, 30 students in the tent. And Mr. Du taught all the Chinese subjects, and I taught all the English subjects, including mathematics, history, and geography. Can I take you right back to 1913 and Newcastle upon Tyne? So tell me, what kind of family were you born into? A working class. Uh, my father was, uh, at that time, a grocer. He was called into the army because of the First World War. And at that time, when he went into the army, he was recruited. I was only one year old, so I couldn't remember him. When he came out of the army in 1918, I was then five years old, and I was starting school. And that's when I got to know my father. Uh, Before that, I lived with my mother, my sister, who was a little older than I, 
and my mother, my mother and my auntie, we lived together. Now you've said in previous interviews that your father was was quite an influence, or the my way that he looked. Although he had very little education, he only studied up to primary six because his parents died by accidents. And he, he had to go working when he was 12 years old. Uh, so he, but he, um, after going in the army, he learned a lot. And uh, he used to read the dictionary and teach himself. He was actually quite, quite well educated in spite of the fact that he had very little school. Where did, where did the church missionary element come from? Was that from your parents? No. They were not, not missionary types, no. No, um, I met a young man at university and uh, I joined his church, thinking it was a good church because they didn't have all the swinging of the, the incense and dressing up in silks and so on. And I thought that was good. But when I got into it, I thought it was, I found it very narrow-minded. I wasn't happy in it at all. What did you study at university? Mainly history, but I did study Latin and uh, ethics. Did you always look at teaching as a career, or did you have no. other things as a young woman? I didn't want to be a teacher because I was too shy, and I thought I could never stand up in front of a, a lot of tall boys <laughs> because I'm quite small, you know, con comparatively. I'm the smallest of the family. And uh, I dreaded the idea of teaching boys who were so much taller than myself. I wanted to go into the civil service and earn some money for my parents, you see. But the headmistress said, no, you're doing well in school. You must go to university. She got my parents to go to school and she persuaded them to support her. And they did. And uh, I went right through school with no fees to pay. Oh, for, for a scholarship? Oh, scholarships, yeah. That must have been extraordinary for your parents in that era. Well, it was, because my parents had only been in primary school. Um, my mother used to go to and talk to her neighbours and show my reports, you know, and I, was, I felt so shy. <laughs> um, my father wanted me to become a member of parliament in England. But I didn't... I seemed to be thinking in terms of going to other countries, Africa or China or somewhere. Uh, so did you go anywhere before Hong Kong? China. Uh, I went to China for three years. So you went very much at the time when Mao Zedong, oh, when it became we communist? When Mao Zedong's army entered the city. So where were you? At Yangtze in Anshan, and we saw them coming in, and the people were all shouting and uh, welcoming them. It was very good at first, you know. What were you doing there? Studying a little Chinese. We also had a, a hospital. The church had a hospital, but they didn't let me go to work there because I was not a nurse. So really, I didn't have much to do there except um, get to know the people. But I, I wasn't happy in, in China, in the church. 
because the, the church used to, I, well, they used to say to me, be kind to the Chinese, but keep them in their place. And I said, where is their place? And they said, well, you must sit in the front, and always sit in the front. But I said, the Bible says, don't sit in the front. Oh, no, that's, you know, that doesn't apply to us. <laughs> so what church was it, Anglican or...? No, it was Plymouth Brethren, narrow, very narrow-minded. So you then, you got disenchanted with the Plymouth Brethren? Absolutely horrified. And then what led to your decision to come down to Hong Kong? Was that also the political situation in China? Yes, I was a missionary in China. And in 1951, all the missionaries decided to leave because um, the Korean War was on and uh, technically we were enemy aliens. We didn't get treated like enemies by the Chinese, but um, I think it must have been the British government that gave us the hint that we should all leave. So we all left in January. I arrived in about the 21st of January, 1951, uh, intending to go to Borneo to continue missionary work. But I never never saw Borneo, <laughs> stayed in Hong Kong. So when you first arrived in Hong Kong, what were your first impressions? Well, uh, it was very primitive. It seemed very primitive to me in some ways. As we crossed the border, we came across a little bridge. It was just a rickety bridge. One side was the Chinese flag with a soldier beside it, and the other side was the uh, the British flag. And I thought, well, now we're coming into a a democratic system, and uh, I expected to find Hong Kong like Britain. And it wasn't very long before I found out how wrong I was. Well, I continued with the missionary work for a while, but I'd already been disillusioned about missionary work while in China. And the, more, the longer I saw it in Hong Kong, the more disillusioned I became. And I noticed that what we really needed in Hong Kong was to stand up for the people's rights, for example, education for the children. The government was doing nothing whatsoever for the children who came in from China. And uh, I was living in a squatter area, I saw these kids had nothing to do all day except carry the babies on their backs. Even small, very small girls would be carrying babies on their backs while their mothers worked. And it seemed to me that it was time somebody did something about their education. And what squatter area were you living in? Kai Tak New Village, which is uh, not exactly identifiable now, but near Wong Dai Sin Lok and uh, when you saw the squatter area you decided that the children needed some form of education so how did you do something practically about that? Well um, in our church we had um, Mr. Du who later became my husband but uh, he was uh, renting out books to children but he didn't like the books they were cartoon types and he said to me you know I'm an education, and you're also an education. Why don't we set up a school for these poor kids? And that is how it started. It was his suggestion first. The missionaries didn't want me to do that unless I would teach only the Bible. And I said, well, you know, it's not very fair. You send your children to university, but you think the Bible is good enough for the Chinese children. 
Eventually, I managed to persuade them to allow us to set up a school with Form 1, 30 students, and we managed to get an army tent. Some of our members in the church were English members, were members of the British forces, and I think they were the ones who got us a cheap army tent. And we set up the school teaching Bible, of course. That was taught by one of the Chinese members. And all the other subjects were taught by Mr. Du or myself. Well, we're still in touch with some of them. They, they did very well. Some of, one became social worker uh, in Hong Kong government, and one's an atomic scientist. We, we really got on very well with those, those children. So how do you feel when you meet them today? Oh, it's, it's really interesting because uh, to them, it's, we are the family. We were like a family. And very often they were involved in fires. They lived, most of them lived in wooden huts in the neighborhood. And when there was a fire, if their hut was burned out, the other children would put the pocket money together to buy new books. Well, they were one who's the victims. So uh, it really was like a family affair. Yes, you must have seen some great acts of charity and neighborliness. But um, at the same time as the joy you must have had from seeing that these children were thriving on, on being able to go to school and have an education, it must have, you must have seen some very desperate situations at that time as well. Oh, yes, very desperate situations. People who were sick, uh, they, had, they couldn't afford medical treatment and they weren't entitled to any any kind of treatment. I, I remember seeing one boy's body lying in the nullah, that is the, the ditch near where we lived. He was dead. Uh, just nowhere to go to get treatment. And in fact, we, uh, we started a clinic. We did have a clinic for uh, three or four years. Just started quite unofficially. Somebody came to our door one day and said, look at my feet. And they were in a terrible mess with what I would think was Hong Kong foot. So we took her inside and washed her feet with uh, some kind of medication and uh, put some bandages on and said, come back in a day or two. So she came back in a day or two, bringing two or three others with her. <laughs> and so we started an unofficial clinic, unregistered, illegal. But the government kept its eyes closed at that time because they couldn't, they couldn't set up their own clinics, so they didn't want to stop us from providing med medical attention. So once you've got this little building and it's just two classrooms at that time, and then did it gradually expand? Yes. Uh, the next year we needed an extra room because we had to go up to Form 3. And uh, a Hong Kong man, philanthropist, his name is Noel Croucher, you may have heard of him, he came and had a look at it and he said, uh, if you're going to build a new a second story, here's the money. And uh, so we built a second story. So you've taken on a few few cases just as a, a citizen complaining. Yeah. And, uh, but what was the first sort of drive that you actually, or campaign that you actually did against corruption for, more formally? Uh, well, the first thing I, that raised a storm was when I found that the... Uh, I read a piece in the uh, Guardian, British Guardian, that the workers in China were working 10 hours a day, six days a week, and the British were uh, blaming them, you know, criticizing the hard work. So I wrote back to the Guardian, I said, do you know that in Hong Kong, the workers are working seven days a week, 
16 to 18 hours a day. And I signed myself E. Elliot. And uh, they thought I was a, it must be a man, of course. <laughs> so somebody in the House of Commons raised this letter by a Mr. Elliot of Hong Kong. Is it true? And uh, they discovered, yes, it was true, that the people were working 16 to 18 hours a day and uh, seven days a week. If they were, lucky, they were lucky if they got half a day off at Chinese New Year, no other holidays. Uh, so then eventually uh, measures were taken to reduce the working hours by half to eight hours, but then it didn't help the people because they reduced the pay. They were being paid by the hour. So then they were told, if you want to work overtime, you can. So they went back to working 16 hours a day because they couldn't afford to live without as well as your work for for the common man and the and, and, and fighting for better rights and also the fight against corruption, another area that I always associate your name with is the Star Ferry price rise. Yes, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. People say that the riot took place over a five cent fare rise. That's not correct. They were going to double the fares on both the upper and lower deck, and it was only after the riots that they compromised and raised the upper deck fares only five cents. Nobody travelled on it for, for a long time. They all went downstairs <laughs> into the lower deck to, just to show their disapproval. Yes, I got involved in that because I was a member of the Transport Advisory Committee, and they... The Star Ferry Company had just opened a new route from Central to Wanjai, and they said that it might not be profitable because they didn't know how many people would use it, but they would promise that they would not raise the fares until at least one year after they opened the route, and then at that time, after one year, if necessary, they might cross-subsidize by raising the fares of the, the other ferries. I didn't object to that, but then they didn't keep their promise. After two months, they said they were going to raise the fares, and it was just the worst time because it was a time when they were having, we were having a run on the banks, and a lot of poor people had been putting their pennies and dollars into um, savings banks. It was just coppers, you know, and, and then they, the banks failed, those, some of those banks failed. And they were queuing up to try to get the money, and then the banks would close the doors and say, no more money left, sorry. So it seemed to be the wrong time for the ferries to start squeezing the, the public. And I knew that the bus companies were waiting in the sidelines to do the same, because as a member of the Transport Advisory Committee, I was aware of that. And all I did was to ask people to speak up. I didn't ask people to go and riot because I didn't think it was a big enough issue to go and riot about. I, I, I should tell you that Brooke Bernanke and I on the, on the Reform Club, I was a member of Reform Club at that time, we made a report about drugs, drugs and we mentioned that we believed the police were involved in the trafficking or in protecting the trafficking. And a lawyer who knows Brooke Bernanke told him that he's heard, he heard Laylock say, We'll get them, meaning Brooke Bernanke and myself. So I think they took the opportunity of the, riot, of the demonstrations to change it into a riot 
and then they um, accused me of paying the boys to throw stones. Now, to pay anybody to throw stones would never enter my mind. I would, might have paid them not to throw stones, <laughs> but certainly not to throw them. <laughs> you were also monitoring police corruption that you saw um, involved in the transport. Yes. Um, in transport, there was a lot of corruption. Uh, when a, a driver had an accident, no matter whether he was responsible to blame or whether it was the pedestrian to blame, the police would say, we fix it for you, 15% of the possible compensation you'd have to pay. Uh, otherwise, we're going to charge you anyhow. And the poor victim could get nothing. Uh, if, it was, if it was a victim to blame, of course, you, you couldn't say much. Then it was the driver you were sympathised with. But most of the time, it was the victim who suffered. They fixed up the killing of a, 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 a teenage boy. I went to the spot and I saw where he'd been knocked down, on the pavement. But they said he was in the middle of the road. So there was quite a lot of this going on? Oh, it was going on. Every accident... Someone from the transport department, a woman, rang me up one day and she said, I don't want to give my name, but I work in the government and I'm absolutely shocked to find that our people are charging 15% on every accident to fix it up. So were you very thrilled when the, the ICAC was founded? Oh, absolutely, except that I had some doubts about the way it was founded. Uh, yes, I was really very happy when Murray McLehose really investigated. I tried to get the other governors to investigate, but they always said, where's the evidence? Well, I could only give the evidence by giving people's names, and I didn't dare to do that because I knew if I gave the names of people, they would be killed or beaten up. So I always had that difficulty in giving the evidence. But when I told Magleyhose, and when, especially the Godber case, I'd, I'd already reported to Godber about the corruption, and he, I had a letter from him saying that, that it wasn't true. And Explain a little bit about the Godber case. Oh, the Godber case. Well, I was reporting time after time about the minibus drivers having to pay the police through the triads every time they picked up passengers at the terminals especially in Jordan Road and the bigger terminals and I, I went to the anti-corruption branch where there was a man called Peter Law and he mugged things up I was going to take him to see it but I, I, it's, it's a long story I won't tell you that at the moment but discussed it with Peter Law I thought I'll try Peter Godber so I wrote to Peter Godber, and I had photographs showing the police watching the triads collecting the money given to me by the drivers. I didn't show Peter Godber the pictures. I just told him about it, and I said, if you go to Jordan Ferry, you'll see a Jordan Road Ferry, uh, not the ferry, Jordan Road uh, minibus station, which is near the ferry. You will see it for yourself. I got the answer back. There is no foundation for what you're saying. So I thought, well, blow me, you know. Can't trust him either. So I took a friend with me, an English lady, and camera, and I took photographs, 
watching, uh, took photographs of the triads collecting the money and the police standing watching. I went to the, one of the policemen and said, why are you not stopping these triads from collecting money? You won't believe it. The policeman said, oh, the drivers like to give the money. I said, oh, strange. So then I got on a bus, one of the minibuses that I'd seen, where I'd seen him having to pay the, the, the uh, triads. I sat in the front seat beside him, and uh, when he started, when he got out of sight of the police, I said to him, do you like to pay these people? He said, like? If we don't, it's... And he drew his finger across his throat. And in fact, one driver was beaten to death for not paying. Another one was persecuted so much that he committed suicide. I wrote all this out and gave my pictures to the to TVB. TVB were very good. They sent someone to see Peter Godber, and they said, Mr. Godber, did you know anything about this corruption at the uh, Jordan Road Ferry? No. Did anybody tell you about it? No. So then they came to me and they said, did you tell Mr. Godber about this? I said, yes. Have you got the letter? Yes. Have you got his answer? Yes. And they put it on the television. <laughs> so Peter Godber was really in the mess then, you see. Peter Godber was a former chief superintendent of the Royal Hong Kong Police Force in Kowloon. While he was praised for his actions during the riots of 1967, he became embroiled in a bribery scandal shortly before his retirement in 1973. He would later be jailed for four years. In more recent years, I mean, you were always known for being anti-colonial. Would you agree with that? Yes, I was always anti-colonial because my father brought me up that way. He said we have no right to go and take other people's countries. In more recent years, you've been criticised for being too sympathetic to mainland China. Well, that suits the, the so-called Democrat Party. I haven't shown any way in which I'm... I don't know how they say that I'm pro-China. The fact is I'm not anti-China. If you're not anti-China, they make you pro-China, you see. Where would you say your politics are in terms of Hong Kong? Would you like to see universal suffrage, one man, one vote? Not in the present situation, no. Because I don't trust the ones who are fighting for it. I don't think they'll do any good for Hong Kong. I would, say, I would rather see it just, you know, step by step. Do you feel that there is more care for workers in comparison to when you started off giving education to slum kids? I think there was a big change when, from the time MacLeos came. He came 1971, and you could see the changing. He set up education, for free education, up to Form 3, and he set up... Uh, uh, some uh, social welfare system which was much better he changed the housing system which I think didn't turn out very well but it was meant well he did a lot of things that people don't seem to remember Murray MacLeod was really uh, I would say a democrat at heart but he wasn't allowed to bring democracy into Hong Kong
He just carried it out in his own area by following democratic ways, but no voting. Do you also, in addition to, to your work, do you have any hobbies that you enjoy doing? Well, reading is my main hobby. I like to read the politics of the world. I don't read novels or nonsense. I like to read real things that are happening. You know, in terms of your life in Hong Kong, do you have any regrets or do you like the way that your life, you know, um, in terms of the fact that you came here and, and stayed I here? Think it was the best thing that could have happened. The best thing? Yeah, yeah. Elsie, too. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.